The Pace Line is supported by LAL Cycling. The Coast is Calling. LAL Shore Collection embodies the spirit and style of the California Coast. All LAL products are crafted right here in Southern California for shipment worldwide. And the Pace Line is brought to you by Health IQ. You ride your bike, you stay in shape, you deserve lower life insurance rates. Head over to their website, healthiq.com forward slash paceline, and find out how much your riding can save you on premiums. Now on to the show. And that's when I saw the police car. <laughs> as, I, as I led the group through, it, through the stop sign, no, none of us stopping at around 25 miles per hour. And guess what happened? We will answer Fatty's question as part of our discussion on where and why cyclists break traffic laws. And part two of Patrick's interview, the dirty cans of primer. We had one stretch of the course um, between ranch houses that was uh, 42 miles long. So uh, riders went 42 miles without seeing another house. Line, the podcast on two wheels. Welcome to show number 63. Hottie and Fatty here, which does sound a little bit like the sequel to the 2008 blockbuster starring Paris Hilton, The Hottie and the Naughty. You, you know, Hottie, that earned a whopping 5% on, rot- on Rotten Tomatoes. The What was the movie again? It was a movie. The, yeah, the movie, The Hottie and the Naughty. Oh. Starring Paris Hilton. Can it, I get it, that on any of my, uh, like Hulu or somewhere? Or where do I find this thing? Uh, I imagine you can probably find it at your Best Buy bargain basement bin. Five <laughs> percent <laughs> means that it was universally disliked. In fact, okay. by their top critics, it was one hundred percent disliked. Hmm. Hmm. Hopefully, we're doing better than that. I imagine we are. So, welcome everyone to the to the Hottie and the Fatty show. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> riding tandem on the pace line. We are missing Patrick Brady, who is the frequent flyer and publisher of Red Kite Prayer. And it is on Red Kite Prayer that you can find links and photos and listen to this. And of course, you can find it on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud and really anywhere that you can find podcasts. So rate us, review us, then come right on back. Only takes a second. Speaking of which, uh, we got a really fantastic review on iTunes just a couple of days ago. Uh, I thought I'd read that to you. How does that sound? I like that. All right. This the head the headline for this one is always makes me smile and think about my writing. I've long enjoyed both the writing and spoken ramblings of ramblings is right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Patrick, Fatty, and Michael. They provide a great balance and different perspectives on all things cycling. I share more in common with Patrick in terms of how writing fits into my life with other commitments, but Michael and Fatty remind me of my competitive side. Always lots of good things to think about. Uh, super super big thanks to Sub 5 Hour Solo Century who's, uh, that's a great name. Mm-hmm. I believe that, uh, I believe that could have been written by me, but it wasn't, I swear. I wonder if, he, uh, if that man or per, lady or man, do we know? We don't know. If it's living up to their moniker, sub five hour solo century, ouch, that's, that's moving along. That is, that is fast. That is really fast. And you know, they they kind of got us nailed. Um, you and I definitely are the more competitive, race oriented mm-hmm. two of the three of us. Uh, you know, m- uh, with uh, Patrick out there in Japan right now, uh, seeing uh, seeing all the temples there and just having an amazing time. And yesterday, I was riding for ninety minutes in my basement watching uh, Breaking Bad and trying to maintain a cadence of 110. And last Saturday, I, I rode for six hours mm. in the basement. What? Six. Oh, man. I do whatever Vodders tells me to do, man. 
I and just he, do. Oh, and his prescription was six hours in your basement? No, he didn't say in the basement, oh. but it. Uh, we got a lot of snow last weekend. Three mm. new inches on my front lawn. Hmm. And yeah, so it was it was definitely an indoor riding day, and we were we were putting on a, a and I say we because my wife was doing this as well. We were really really pushing it. By the end of that six hours, we were toast, and we'd finished season three of Breaking Bad. <laughs> so on on a day like or a weekend like that, when you do get snow, how if you wanted to ride outdoors, how far mm-hmm. would you have to go to find you know? No snow on the ground. I would, if I went to Moab or to St. George, I would certainly uh, be able to ride without snow. For right. sure in St. George. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get the nice desert single track and it would just be fantastic. This upcoming weekend, we are going to Moab where we are going to, where the instructions per Vodders, and you can find this on Twitter, is eight to nine hours flat stick. And I did not even know what flat stick meant, so I had to ask. Um, and apparently that is when your uh, RPM gauge on a, uh, on a car is all the way to the right and is just laying flat, that is flat stick. So just go as hard as I can for eight or nine hours. We are going to do a fast lap of the white rim. That's uh, exactly 100 miles. Have you ever ridden the White Rim, Hottie? No, I have not. My, my Utah riding comes down to Cedar City. Okay. Yeah. Well, I tell you what. Open invitation. I will take you on a tour of the White Rim. It is beautiful, for one thing. And it is, in my estimation, just one of the most pleasant centuries that you can do on a mountain bike. It's, it's one of those things where there are is a lot of time when you're out there where the scenery, while beautiful, remains essentially unchanged because you're going for a long ways. And it's sort of like a Roadrunner cartoon. And it's one of those places where you can do a little bit of wool gathering and sort of let your mind wander and go to that um, self, you know, non, non-self-aware, just kind of riding in the moment uh, feeling. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I've I've gone miles where I'm not necessarily thinking of anything, and it's a really pleasant place to be. I always love it when I manage to kind of get into that personal bike zen feel. Yeah, and that's really important too because so much of the riding that many of us have to do involves not just the pedaling and the pain and what have you, but the dealing with you know the traffic and the other riders maybe or situations that might mm-hmm. come up. And just letting your mind float away and letting the body really just take over 100% is a tough find in this world. And so it's great that you have found that place and you're going to it uh, this weekend. So good luck. So when he means flat, does he mean you have to hold a high cadence for eight hours? Does he mean I don't quite follow the training here? In this case, it is get around that 100-mile loop as fast as we can. Oh, wow. So it is a basically do this 100 miles race pace. Well, I'm a little confused because I thought he was going to have you work on what would be considered high tempo riding. Or is that it? That is. That's okay. definitely it. Okay. And he's been having me riding at, you know, cadence of 110. Mm-hmm. And I am going to be focusing on that. So, you know, his, him saying flat stick doesn't mean just go fast. It means go fast, and I should not be mashing as is my normal, now, you, my normal way. You've been a trainer road guy for yeah. as long as I've known you. How does what Vodder's, uh, how does what Vodder's been telling you differ from what you were getting off of Trainer Road? You know, Vodder's gives me much simpler, uh, simpler workouts. But, and this is going to be kind of, you know, kind of geeky. What I do is I take his instructions and I create my own workouts in Trainer Road. Oh, okay. So there, there is a workout builder that Trainer Road has, a free workout builder. And you can say, you know, okay, go at 100% for this long, then taper it down for, you know, six minutes, you know, for six minutes and so forth. And you can, I can take Vodder's instructions and make a very detailed plan 
uh, or not just a plan, but an actual workout that is telling me, okay, go to 110 RPM, mm-hmm. uh, go at this percentage of my of my FTP, and you know, go with so many watts, and just go that way. So I'm taking his, you know, his pretty um, general um, prescriptions and turning it into very specific trainer road workouts. And, and prior to JV's intervention, did you just allow trainer road the way trainer road works is you can tell it this is what i'd like to do i'd like to do Mm -hmm. an endurance mountain bike event and it'll spit out an entire workout plan for the user is that how you used trainer road yeah trainer road is is really good that way in that they you can say okay i there you you can do a a plan like you say and it'll give you a workout for X days, you know, however many days per week you can do low volume, me- medium volume, or mm-hmm. high volume plans, and it'll just do it. What is really different with what Vodders is doing is I Trainer Road and the kicker together basically force you to do a certain number of watts. And as a masher, I was doing those watts, but I was still doing it at a remarkably low cadence. Mm-hmm. And Vodders is giving me real specific instructions on a much higher cadence. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm learning a lot there. And also Vodders is really good at accommodating things that I want to do. Like with the uh, trip we're taking out to Moab this weekend, you know, I told him, I said, hey, um, there's a bunch of us who've been wanting to go and ride the White Rim. We do that every you know, every spring, can we make that, can we make that the centerpiece of this week? And he was happy to, you know, move the workouts around to match my life, you know, which is kind of his whole, his whole thing, what he was wanting to do, mm-hmm. you know, take you know, normal people and our normal lives and, and sort of overlay a pro, you know, pro knowledge structure on top of it. Mm-hmm. It's been, it's been a, a remarkable year for me so far yeah and if i understand too about trainer road is i've heard the guys talk a lot on their podcast about what they do and about some of their training plans and trainer road is largely what they call polarized training at least that's Mm -hmm. what the guys seem to subscribe to in other words whether either you're doing a good tough hard workout or you're not um there's really no there's there's not as much in between with trainer road as there might be with a coach saying okay we could do a little this or no i want to see you ride at more of a steady state pace for you know bigger chunks of time so i there's probably two schools of thought working with you too here yeah for sure for sure and you know like for today um I need to do three hours of riding. You know, I need, you know, put that in quotes because it's like, you know, I have to eat two servings of ice cream today is kind of like what it's saying. (laughs) And, you know, the the instructions that Vodders have given me only really account for about an hour of that. And so I built a little workout that will do that. And then my wife and I are going to go out and do an extra couple hours of writing. And he said, my, you know, my wattage for this three hour period should average out to be around 170, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, you know, I'll be doing these intervals and making sure that I hit the numbers that I need to. And then we're going to go out and we're going to just sort of have a fun birthday ride because it's my wife's birthday today. Oh, well, happy birthday to the hammer. That's right. Mm-hmm. I could talk, you know, we could hijack the whole podcast and we talk about this. <laughs> I get, and like you, I geek out on this stuff. Um, yeah. I don't get involved in the programs to your level. Like I've never been involved with trainer road, but I've certainly talked to coaches and do a lot of self coaching mostly, but I do geek mm-hmm. out on the info. I love listening to, to all sides of this stuff because you know, I don't think there's any ex- one way to do it. There's different ways to find fitness, right? Right. And the key is of course, finding the one that works best for you. It is. Although I'm a little bit of the opinion that if you adhere to and dedicate yourself to to most programs, you will get at least a certain amount mm-hmm. of improvement. Mm-hmm. And I am an untrained or self-trained enough of a writer over the course of however lo- however long that I still have a lot of that those easy gains to make with I would say practically any program. Mm-hmm. So I am, you know, I'm noticing that, you know, I feel 
pretty darn strong. And I don't know whether that is 100% true. Like, how am I going to feel at the end of this white rim ride at the uh, next weekend? I might have a better idea because I'll be able to measure it against other times that I've done it. Although, of course, wind and heat and things like that can all, you know, can change everything. Mm -hmm. But I feel really good. I feel really strong right now. And that goes a long ways. It does. You know, yeah. Yep. Just the sense that you're doing well, uh, it matters in in kind of the same way that if you feel like you are just dying, that you are suffering and just doing, having a terrible day, you know, that gets in your head. And I, I don't even know how many times I've come back from a ride thinking that I was just terrible. And then you load, you know, your, your ride actually uploads onto Strava or, you know, whatever you're using to measure. And you're like, huh, that wasn't so bad after all. But your sense at the moment is that you are terrible. Your sense at the moment is that you're great. But the difference in actual speed is usually not that big. (laughs) So. Yeah. Good stuff. I don't know. Just keep pedaling, I guess. Maybe that's the real answer, right? Yeah. So. Tell me this. Are you a scofflaw? Am I a scofflaw? I ride a are bike. You, you ride Come a bike. on. <laughs> yeah. I, I, when I was riding around uh, Utah Lake a, a couple of weeks ago, and I bet most riders have had this experience, you, where you're on one of the sections where, they're, where you are on the main road, but there are a number of four-way intersections. And you, sometimes you have a four-way stop. Whoever is taking the pole, you know, they signal that you are slowing to a stop and then you look both ways, you know, left and right, and you can see for miles in either direction and you are clear and so you roll on through and you you assigned everyone, you know, roll on through. And I did that and uh, in this case, there was a truck. Uh, coming in the opposite direction, it was stopped and it was starting to roll through. And in my opinion, that's like the best of all possible signs because, you know, they're coming through. And so no one could be coming from the left or right anyway. And so it's like implicit permission, just, you know, blaze on through. And so I did that and I had the rest of the group, you know, coming in behind me. And that's when I saw the police car. (laughs) <laughs> as I as I led the group through it, through the stop sign, no none of us stopping at around twenty five miles per hour. And guess what happened? I want to say uh, reds and blues. Nothing happened. Oh, I, I my <laughs> my heart was in my throat, and I was absolutely certain. I was like, oh boy, I am going to have earned every single one of us a ticket. And nothing happened. And, you know, and I'm, I'm looking over my shoulder every few seconds for a while. Nothing happened. I don't know why. Maybe it's because it was a lonely road. Maybe he was just on his way home and couldn't be bothered. I don't know. But yes, I too am a scofflaw. It's just in this one instance, I got away with it. Well, it's funny you bring it up because your incident and the issue you were talking about was the subject of a study, thank God. In the Journal of Transport and Land Use, uh, the new study uh, looked at why cyclists break the law. And it turns out, according to the study, that most of them do it in the service of self-preservation. The journal looked at their talk to about 18,000 cyclists. The results were that more than 70% of the time... When cyclists break traffic laws, they do so because they feel they need to in order to stay safe. So I guess an example would be you are in a left-hand turn lane. In fact, this is the one I do all the time. In a left-hand turn lane, um, you don't have the left. You have a red left arrow staring you in the face, Mm -hmm. but you kind of feel like you're sitting out there uh, exposed as traffic is coming up behind you. And what I do often is I'll go ahead and and roll through the intersection, even though I have a red left-hand turn arrow, just to get the hell out of there. Right. Because I am worried that someone's going to come up from behind me and and catapult me, slam into me, catapult me for hundreds of yards. 
So yeah. that would be, I think, an example of self-preservation um, that they're talking about. Um, the, the stop sign, running stop signs, I, I, I suppose somebody could make a self-preservation argument. I think more than anything, that's a momentum argument. I mean, that's cyclists yeah. trying to keep their momentum and keep moving forward. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, I was like, can I make an argument that I, I did that to be safe? No, I could did I could not, at least in that instance, say that I did it to be safe. I did it because I wanted to keep up our average, mm-hmm. and we were having a fast, good ride. <laughs> um, there are times, of course, and it is usually at four ways that, uh, that I will not come to a stop. And in general... I don't know if you get this too. People will wave you on through. You know, they're just like, go. And I do the same thing when I'm in a car. I prefer the bike just to go because I don't know the skill level of the cyclist. And I kind of just want them to get their business done. Hmm. And I think they're thinking, you know, cars when I'm on a bike are thinking the same thing. It's like, just let this guy go. Because I can't hit him if he's already completed his turn or has already gone through the intersection, right? They just, you know, it's it's almost a um, if he's not, you know, if he's not in the intersection, everything's a little bit safer. So, uh, the study also talked to so self preservation was the number one reason mm. cyclists said they go ahead and break a traffic law. They did talk to drivers too, and drivers said. First of all, they found that drivers broke traffic laws at a higher rate than cyclists, even though I guess we're a little more obvious when we do it. Sure. And drivers told the researchers that they break traffic laws in order to save time above any other reason. 77% of them said we do it to cut back on the time it's taking us to get from point A to point B. Uh, recreational riders uh, break traffic laws slightly more than those who ride for, quote, utilitarian purposes, like bike commuters, I suppose, would be those. Mm-hmm. Um, but the most surprising thing in the study, at least to us, would have to be that where someone lives or where they ride matters most as to how frequently they do or do not break traffic laws. Where cyclists live and ride matter the most. When it comes to how often they do this, studies author says that social norms of place matter and relocation can have a profound effect on how we treat stop signs and sidewalks and hand signals. Um, I think, do you think you're, the, the example you set out at the top there, Patty, or Patty, <laughs> Patrick, Patty, Patty. Uh, do you think that that example had something to do with where you were? Is that why you broke the law? Or is it just how you are normal? To be sure, it was. Uh, it had to do with where I was. This was on a lonely rural road where almost all of the four ways were completely barren. Um, I, in, in a way, I would have almost felt ridiculous to put a foot down or come even to a rolling stop on these when, you know, when 30 feet before I got to the intersection, I could see that in neither direction for half a mile plus was there any traffic whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can back up this this scofflaw by geography point here by saying this, and that is, you know, in my normal hood in the L.A. area mm-hmm. uh, and with the folks I ride with, stop signs are optional um there's all kinds of uh, indifference to traffic laws as we ride around here but recently i went out and did the redlands strada rosa uh that's a well you can do a hundred mile gravel event they also have a 100k um entry as well and it's put on by the inland empire bicycle alliance that's a bicycle advocacy group um and I, I observed something very, I guess, unique out there. I mean, I was not more than 90 miles from my home where on a normal day riding a bike, again, we'd roll stop signs and do the normal thing. But out there, the locals, and we were in a pack, a good buddy of mine, Carrie and I, went out and did the ride. We were in a pack with locals being led by locals on this gravel event. And the locals' attitude about traffic laws, much different. We stopped at many stop signs or at the Mm. very least we slowed down to where you'd almost have to unclip um 
we red lights obviously were totally obeyed the direction of traffic um all those things were by the letter it was pretty amazing Interesting. and then the the thing that i noticed about what was going on there is drivers the attitude drivers had to us was much different than in la now redlands um, by L.A. Southern California standards would be considered rural. It's not so much. That's a good-sized town out there, and it's well-populated, has plenty of traffic. So there are plenty of encounters with cars. It's not like you're out on a lonely road. But drivers and cyclists got along like I have not seen. And not only that, drivers and cyclists, cyclists and equestrians, cyclists mm-hmm. and hikers, somehow... What's been going on out there with either the Bicycle Alliance or with the local riders or with drivers and how they look at riders, there is some, some good, uh, good relationship building going on out there. And these folks are really getting along. I've never been waved at more times, greeted kindly by uh, you know, the equestrian off-road yeah. biking thing. Man, that could, there's some tension there usually. No, it was great out there. And I think plenty of it has to do with how the cyclists – behave and carry themselves and then drivers too it just it goes it goes both ways out there so sure real interesting example of you know how it can work out you know we do have the power to to change our perception Um, yeah yeah you know and there's a lesson there too maybe it's i'm uh i know that here in utah where i where i do my writing in general uh equestrians and mountain bikers get along very well um I, I, I've mentioned a number of times that I am more often offered a beer by someone on a horse than at any other time. Um, you know, it, it seems like there's just sort of a general good nature. Hey, isn't it great that we have these, you know, this amazing place to live and ride and experience? Um, you don't get that quite as much uh, on the road here. Um, and maybe maybe it has to do with uh, courtesy being extended in both directions, you know, and maybe, you know, maybe I should put a foot down more often, right? Yeah, I think we could do a better job um, with our own PR. Yeah, no question about letting that. letting people know that we, you know, we do appreciate a little room on the road and we are law abiding <laughs> despite what it looks like. Um, we know what the laws are and. Um, but again, the study is uh, Scofflaw Bicycling, Illegal but Rational. And uh, hey, we'll put a link up on Red Kite Prayer at this podcast. We're going to take a quick break now, and then we're going to come back and talk dirty. That's next on The Pace Line. I was merely pointing out what the law is so that you know what it is. Officer. And all you did was pass somebody right after I told you, single file, and then you waved me on. But right. now... That, to me, gives me the impression that you want to be a smart aleck. Officer, you've completely misread Ryan Pinter. We've been talking about Health IQ and how they are helping people to source better rates on life insurance. Recently, they updated their site with new insurers and the ability to serve more people. They've got special rates for cyclists, of course, and runners and triathletes, but also vegans and other health-conscious people now. We've mentioned they have quizzes, and these aren't just for fun. If you score elite on a quiz for a specific lifestyle, that can earn you a further discount on your life insurance. They've also replaced BMI with waist-to-hip ratio, which is a far better predictor of cardiovascular disease when it comes to athletes. Additionally, they replaced the LDL to HDL ratio with triglyceride to HDL ratio for people on low carb or paleo diets because that's a better predictor of cholesterol health. Amazingly, they will not take into account one incidence in a family history if you are otherwise healthy. It's like a get out of jail card. In other words, if one person in your family has had cancer or diabetes, they won't ding you for it. Finally, they can also get better rates for those with runner's heart or hypertension. Check them out at healthiq.com slash paceline. 
the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels, part two with Hottie and Fatty, the sequel to The Hottie and the Naughty, <laughs> 2008 blockbuster. <laughs> and of course, this is a sequel to show 62. We're now in show 63. Did you hear show 62, Fatty? I hope you did. I sure did. I wasn't in it, but I did listen to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm not just a not just a member of the crew. I'm actually a fan of the podcast. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, I flew solo on that show, although we did have an interview from uh, Patrick. It was part one of an interview, and as promised, we have uh, part two now of uh, Patrick's interview. Hey guys, so in part two of my interview with Jim Cummins and Leland Danes from Dirty Kansas. I wanted to talk to them some about what knocks people out of contention and also just out of the event altogether with. There are any number of things that go wrong. And also I learned about just how important the event Bible is. There's a race Bible that uh, really makes a big difference in your day, I'm told. Jim Cummins and Leland Danes of Dirty Kanza. Now, you know, one of the big things that adds to the drama of Dirty Kanza, you know, are all the people who don't finish, especially when you're talking people who are in contention for winning. You know, mm-hmm. Yuri Oswald got knocked out last year. I'm curious how often when someone is knocked out, is it by some other sort of technical challenge, a, you know, a broken derailleur, you know, a broken frame or something like that, as opposed to just more flats than a human being can deal with in a day? Yeah, well, that's uh, a great question, and I don't know, I may, might let Leland speak to that a little bit more. Yeah, well, that depends on the year. Uh, 2015 was our infamous year of the mud, and that was the year that uh, Yuri came out on top and was the Dirty Kansas champion. And yeah. um, that, and, and Yuri would be the first to tell you he wasn't the fastest one on the start line, but that's the beautiful thing about Dirty Kansas. It's, uh, speed is only one factor of it, uh, equipment choice, tenacity, hardiness, all that kind of stuff. And, and some of that Yuri has in spades, and that's what allowed him to get to the finish line. And uh, let's not kid ourselves, a fair amount of good luck, because, yeah, derailers can break in that mud. And, and when we say mud, let's clarify, because it's clay, and clay is a whole different substance that will uh, stick like no other and clog up your wheels and your drivetrain and shatter those derailers. But if we were to take those types of conditions out of it, um, broken derailers are not the, the typical um, it's just um, the, the willpower to continue. The heat is usually a, a big reason, mm-hmm. um, but uh, depending on what the reason is, it usually comes down to uh, a lack of desire to want to continue rather than equipment failure. Again, assuming it's not a, a overly muddy year. Sure. Yeah. The thing that I would like, things I'd like to uh, maybe help your listeners begin to get their heads around is, uh, and, and we see this every year. Uh, people who have never experienced the Flint Hills, never been to this part of the country, they, they might think that they know what it means to be out in the country, be out in the middle of nowhere. Um, but uh, oftentimes their, their eyes are opened <laughs> to what that really means. Um, we had uh, uh, a a course a couple of years ago. Well, it was, I think 2015. Mm-hmm. It was a course we used in 2015. Um, I actually got curious and, and I did a little research um, on the subject of uh, the remoteness of, of the course. And we had one stretch of the course um, between ranch houses that was uh, 42 miles long. So uh, riders went 42 miles without seeing another house. <laughs> um, now, and, 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 and the point is that, you know, you go to some other of these, these gravel events and they're out in the country, but, you know, there's a farmhouse every quarter of a mile. Mm-hmm. You don't feel alone. You, don't, you, you never feel like you're in the middle of nowhere. You get out in the middle of the Flint Hills and the only signs of civilization is the gravel road that you're riding on. This is open range, and, and you're you're riding with the cows. Yeah, as far as you can see, is nothing but rolling hills of green grass. That's amazing. And you realize just how very very small you are, and you realize that the only thing that is going to get you to the next checkpoint is your will to keep 
keep the pedals moving. And I suppose and, how well you've you know, planned. You've been, yeah, and, and after you've been out there for nine hours and, and the sun is starting to bake on you a little bit and you're facing that 40-mile-an-hour headwind, uh, it really starts to test you. Mm. Wow. Yeah, and, that, and that's usually what, uh, you know, you pull into a checkpoint and you're exhausted and you sit down in a lawn chair and you just all of a sudden don't feel that motivated to go back out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I experienced that. That's probably exactly the worst that. is getting to the checkpoint and having that seat and sitting yeah, down and realizing this is a whole lot better than what I was yeah, doing. <laughs> don't sit down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I made that mistake in, in Ragbri back in 97. Got to got huh? 80 miles into a 110-mile day or something and saw this amazing Adirondack chair and sat down and woke up a half an hour later. <laughs> but of course that wasn't a race uh, you know I mean it's amazing to hear you describe that I mean 42 miles between houses I've been all over the United States not Alaska but in terms of you know the contiguous yeah. 48 I've been all over and I can say for certain I've never been out in any place that was truly that remote uh, at least by bike you know yeah. that's that is rare. Wanna, uh, be, you know, telling tall tales here. I, I, I'm not going to say that it was 42 miles to the next house. I will say that on the, that course, before a rider saw another house, you know, there might have been a house a mile off the road sure. that you were on. But if if you weren't from the area and you didn't know the area, uh, it was 42 miles before you saw another house. Right. Yeah. So it. it is a very remote area. That's incredible. Wow. Now, you know, you keep mentioning the wind. So in terms of prevailing wind, is this course normally characterized by headwind? Well, well half of it is. Well, yeah. And <laughs> uh, this was named after the Kaur Kanza tribe, which means people of the south winds. And uh, at that time of year, you can typically expect the south wind, but do this long enough and you're going to get about everything. Last year we had a north wind and riders got to the halfway point, 100 miles to the south of Emporia, and they had 100 miles of headwind to get home, which was very uncharacteristic. But Ooh. yeah, there's you're pretty much guaranteed to have a headwind at some point throughout the day. Yeah. But yeah, if the law of average plays out, you'll have a headwind. With this particular course uh, that we're going to use this year, you'll have a headwind in the first half and a tailwind in, in the second half. So uh, that's the plan. But, uh, you know, mm -hmm. come race day, you get what you get with, when it comes <laughs> to the weather. Sure, sure. Wow. And so another thing, I mean, like, how many different versions of the course have you done over the years? Um. The pattern that we've kind of fallen into is we change a course every two years. Okay. Um, uh, we will, uh, in 2017, we will um, use the 2016 course with a couple of uh, changes that we've had to make, or, or not had to make, but we've chosen to make uh, just to make things flow a little bit better and, and uh, uh, help out with some logistics. But it's, it's a basically a repeat of, last year's course wow. uh, okay. but uh, on, on average we're changing the course every two years okay so I guess you guys probably keep your eye on the old farmer's almanac pretty carefully what would we, what are you suspecting <laughs> yeah um, well you know the, a typical weather I mean and, and this is in large part why we decided to hold the race the time of year that we do. Uh, but uh, you ought to see temperatures in the low 80s and uh, uh, a low chance of rain and uh, winds about 15 to 20 miles an hour. Jim's dreaming of the perfect Kansas day. Yeah, we, I think we've had that weather one year. fourteen. <laughs> Yeah, I just described 2014. One out of 12. Not too bad. <laughs> wow. I, I say it's, you know, it's all law of average. You know, one year it's 100 degrees and another year it's 60, and uh, the average is 80. <laughs> right, right, right. No, it makes perfect sense. Uh, it's amazing, though, that, you know, in a place that's 
thought of as having fairly consistent weather that in 12 editions of the event, you should have so many different situations. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's yeah. really something. Uh, well, yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. Boy. Yeah. Uh, well, for, for any other first-timers who might be coming, any final advice you'd, you'd lend them? Uh, yes. Uh, go to DirtyKansas.com. Uh, click on the info tab and download a copy of our writer's Bible. Um, very, very important that you're familiar with that document. We've gone to a lot of trouble to try to provide all the information that a person needs to be successful here. And uh, we cannot stress enough just how important it is to read through that and, and know that document. Yeah, I've I've had a look at it already. I I certainly need to become more familiar with it as the date draws near. Boy, guys. Yeah, and I just second yeah. that with uh, fortune favors the prepared. So not only the writer's Bible, but get on our social media, get on our YouTube channel, um, if catch up if you've been behind because we put the information out there on what it takes to finish this event. So it should be no secret. We're not uh, out here withholding information. We're trying to give folks everything they need to know to come out here and conquer this thing. And um, that's what it takes is those that have uh, followed us and read up on what it, what they need to do and have been doing it. They're going to be a leg up on the competition. Excellent. Wow. Well, I'm really looking forward to this, looking forward to a chance to, you know, meet you guys, meet the rest of the crew, take part in some of the events that you're going to be having. It's, it sounds like it's going to be a pretty full, I mean, not quite week, but a, you know, very full three or four days. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. We're going to get the weekend kicked off uh, Thursday evening with the great concert uh, featuring Reverend Horton Heat and Agent Orange. And uh, we're basically going to party till Sunday morning. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Jim, Leland, thank you so much for the time. Uh, I'm really grateful for this, uh, and I look forward to seeing you guys. Uh, thanks right. for having thank us on. You. Again, that was Patrick with Jim Cummins and Leland Danes of Dirty Kanza. And if you want to hear part one of that interview, and you probably should, you know, you make it a complete, make it a, make it the whole set. <laughs> go back be to show, a completionist. Yeah, be a, a completionist. Good word. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Go back to show 62 and you'll be able to hear part one of that interview. And of course, we'll have links to Dirty Kanza and we'll make fun of Patrick as he gets ready for what is a, uh, he's going to do the 100 miler, but still he's. He's in over his head, folks. It's okay. like a training ride. I wonder if you know. It's a one-legged drill, man. Um, dirt, speaking of dirty Kanza and what is one of my favorite races, Perry Roubaix. I'd love to actually hear from. I don't know if Ted King did Roubaix. He probably did. I'd love to hear from a pro who's done both. You know, I huh. think Ted did both. I want to say he did, and he said he thought it was pretty close as far as uh, which was more difficult. That they were on, they were pretty even. The two hundred in Kansas, or the and I don't know the mileage at, at Roubaix, uh, but the cobbles at Roubaix. Anyhow, Roubaix, one of my favorite races. Do you, do you watch Roubaix? Do you watch the classics, Fatty? You know, I follow it on Twitter. Is that seems like kind of a lame response, doesn't it? <laughs> but that's, Not really. that's where I get most of my most of my uh, Roubaix. Uh, beta. Not not really. It's getting pretty tough to to catch some of the. Uh, spring racing on regular television or cable television for that. In fact, Flanders, I had to stream to see mm -hmm. it. Now, NBC Sports did put three hours of coverage of Roubaix on. They did it a day late, but at least they had it on. Nonetheless, a, a favorite race of mine. I love the event for on a lot of reasons. It's so unique. There are specialty bikes. There are specialty riders for the event. The crowd is insane. There's hardly a climb, but... You know, you couldn't tell that at the end of the race. Those guys are just yeah. battered. And one of your favorite names in pro cycling, Fatty, did win the event. Greg Von Avermaet. Yeah, that guy. That's the <laughs> Muppet song. What is what goes in, on in your head when you hear his name? Van Avermaet. Yeah. Beep, 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 beep. Yep, that's okay. the one. That's the one. Pretty amazing ride by him. Gold medalist, by the way, from uh, this past Olympics. So uh, he's certainly carrying a lot of confidence right into the spring. He's had good results. Uh, it didn't look great for him with about 102 kilometers to go because he crashed. <laughs> he was on the deck. Uh, yeah. He'd been riding at the back. Something went wrong back there. He got a bike change. 
uh, and got back into it, at least got back onto his bike. And uh, going into the fourth of Arnberg, he was still 30 seconds behind. That's no place to be when you're trying to win a Paris-Roubaix. So with the gold medalists crashed and chasing, Boonen, Tom Boonen, and Peter Sagan, the reigning world champ, went to the front, did what you do, pushed the pace, and tried to get rid of old Greggy. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, didn't work. About 20K later, Van Avermaet was back in the mix doing his thing. So... Uh, Peter Sagan, um, man, the guy was just kind of left to fight for himself the whole race. Unlike yeah, Greg, solo. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's out there just like flailing away, right? It's just just time-trialed it, basically. <laughs> Van Avermaet had Daniel Oss, and Oss was just banging his head mm. against every cobblestone in support of his team leader. Sagan had really no one to help him out with the flats, flat tires, that is. With his mechanical at 31K to go, no one to help him chase attacks uh, that really never stopped from from the get-go. And at a certain point during the race, Sagan just kind of gave in. He was like, I, I'm done. I've I've done all I can. I've done all I can I, on my own. What do you expect one guy to do? <laughs> so Sagan spring, yeah, he won Kern-Brussels Kern. He got second in Milan-San Remo. But he crashed at Flanders trying to chase on his own. And Roubaix was a 38th. And really the problem here, Fatty, for Sagan is he has no support. I mean, he's got a team, but let's take a look at that team. Let's take a look at the names on Sagan's team. And I don't mean to – look, these guys are pros. Who am I to say? They're probably good guys. Sure. But, you know, Boonin had, for instance, in Flanders, Philippe Gilbert, who Mm -hmm. actually won the race. Um Boonen has an entire squad. Grant Van Avermont has Daniel Oss at the uh, the very least to help him. Sagan, here's Sagan's t- helpers. Christoph Finkston, Marcus Burkhart. Stop me if you recognize the name, by the way. Lucas Postelberger. Still not stopping you. Juraj Sagan, that's his brother. Okay. Sort of recognize the name. Uh-huh. Marcier <laughs> Bodnar. Rudiger Selig. Yeah, Andreas Schillinger. Still nothing familiar, huh? I'm sorry. Um, I'm, I'm beginning to feel bad about myself. Yeah, there. Michael Kohler. Don't know him. Uh, Alexis Saramontens. Saramontens. Maybe it's just the way you're pronouncing it. It could be. That could be the case. But I think <laughs> the point here is... Uh, Peter, even though as good as he is, as, as high regard as we like to hold him to, um, you do need you do some need lieutenants. some experience. Yeah, you yeah. need some teammates, and you need some teammates who are a threat to the rest of the peloton. Because mm-hmm. it's one thing that they can't even keep up with you, but if they are up there, you want to at least get the attention of the other contenders. When you put a teammate around you, that mm, that guy's a threat. He could go like Philippe Joubert. Philippe Joubert was a threat uh, at Flanders. Um, the same uh, Sagan, I think, deserves and needs the same. He can't just do it on his own. So that was Sagan's day again. Uh, your man, Fatty Greg Van Avermont, uh, did win the race, um, and uh, a fantastic ride to him. So congrats. Oh, back to Burkhart. Yeah, um, Burkhart, Sagan's teammate. Of the writers who uploaded their data to Strava, and I'm glad they do this, during uh, after Roubaix, he did take out the most KOMs, or KOCs, King of the Cobbles. Hmm. He had nine trophies on the day. Van Avermaet, the winner, uh, usually uploads his rides, but he lost his computer while bouncing over the Pava. <laughs> I just... <laughs> uh, so much for his... Uh, the mount was no match for the cobbles. That's right. <laughs> um, but, but, uh, folks, you should go check out the, all the Strava entries, too, from Roubaix. Pretty interesting. Uh, some high wattage, like 300 watts average for the whole race by a few ri- riders. I mean, that is so, most most recreational cyclists can't hold that for an hour, let alone yeah. more than six. So pretty that amazing stuff. incredible. And, of course, and this, you, this was not only Tom Boonen's last Paris-Roubaix, it was his last race, really, to speak of. Uh, a storied career, a great career, um, not only in the Spring Classics, but really uh, most places he raced. I mean, he's a Green Jersey mm-hmm. winner and um, really a fantastic guy. Well, I mean, he was so well-loved in, in his home country 
of Belgium that he had to move to Monaco. Um, just couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. Well, the press is really what got to him. Um, you know, they just chased him everywhere. Uh, yeah. He's such a celeb. Boonen's record so, at Roubaix, pretty amazing, though. Seven podiums, yeah. including four wins. Uh, since 2002, he has only missed the race twice due to injury. He has mm-hmm. one DNF and one 24th. This year he was 13th, but everything else has been top 10 or better at Perry roubaix So, really extraordinary. Yeah. Obviously, a guy who really, really loved the race. You know, they run a juniors race at Perry and, and Perry Roubaix, and Boonen raced it, but never won it. He yeah. only started winning until he turned pro and and banging him out. So, yeah. Now, have you ever ridden the cobbles? Not like that. <laughs> I've been I, on. I know, I've never ridden cobbles at all, but it, it was actually kind of instructive to me to hear that. Uh, who was it who lost his uh, GPS to the cobbles? Well, uh, Van Avermaet, the winner, lost his, yeah. His oh, he lost. Yeah. He was the one who lost him. That actually was instructive because I've had my GPS eject while going over cattle guards mm-hmm. before. And I, I, I'm now doing sort of a rough equivalent. I mean, imagine riding cattle guards for <laughs> however many miles. I mean, th- it takes about that much to basically eject from the mount that is uh that is just beyond the pale i I can't even yeah i'm going to get to some of the equipment highlights here from perry roubaix because they're really interesting but and and one of them was um some riders do tether their garment or whatever computer they use Mm -hmm. uh, to their bike so if it does hop out of the mount a tether will grab it and i i look for ways to do that at our favorite race fatty at leadville did have you yeah. ever had an issue there with stuff flying off, coming down Columbine or anything? No, I haven't. It's always stayed on okay for me. I've lost bottles before, but of course everyone loses the yep. occasional bottle, right? Yep. Well, the equipment, another thing that makes uh, Perry-Roubaix special and interesting and fun to read about and look at is to see what gets rolled out for what is usually a one-time use only uh, mm. The bikes and the gears and the bar tape and all the interesting things. Here are just a few things I came across I thought was interesting. First of all, Sky, they're on Pinarello. Sky had a hydraulic rear suspension piece kind of in a yoke where the seat stays come together and just before it intersects with the seat tube, um, there's a suspension piece in there. And we've seen it there in the past. It's been an elastomer piece. Now they have a mm-hmm. hydraulic piece in there and it's electronically controlled. Oh, boy. Wow. Uh, yeah, they have a button on their bars, and they can lock it out if they want or open it up and get a little uh, rear suspension movement on huh. this Pinarello Dogma. It's pretty cool, huh? Boy, that's nice stuff. Uh, the other big suspension piece uh, that's been in the news and was at Perry roubaix was, of course, from Specialized, uh, their new Future Shock. Uh, that suspension is um, in between the bars and the top of the head tube. Both Tom Boonen. And Peter Sagan, their specialized riders, rode a Roubaix with the Future Shock. So, a Future Shock got its debut on its key bike, the specialized Roubaix. Uh, Sunweb uh, had disc brakes on there. Now, there's been a lot of discussion, and we've talked about here on the Pace Line about disc brakes in the Pro Peloton. Again, disc brakes are back on in the Pro Peloton. UCI's cleared teams to use them, and Roubaix would seem like an obvious choice. Well, uh, the majority of riders went with traditional stuff, but Sunweb had disc brakes on their Giants. Uh, none of the favorites did. Van Avermaet mm-hmm. rode, you know, standard rim brake stuff. Uh, two teams were spotted with um, disc brakes, in fact, Giant being one of them. And then a Cannondale rider rode a, just one of them, rode a Synapse with mechanical disc brakes. So not necessarily hydraulic, just however you can huh. get them on. Yeah, mechanical disc brakes. Why would you do that? Uh, because he wanted to ride. I'm pretty sure it's because he wanted to ride the new. Well, now that wouldn't be the case because new Durace does have hydraulic. So yeah, uh, uncertain as to why he would okay. want to do that. But yeah, at least one oh, guy. Had okay, yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, it, uh, frankly, a little surprising. But yeah, okay. Tire pressure is key uh, at Roubaix. You know, we always yeah. hear about stuff below 70, but it, it was down to 55 PSI for some front tires um, entered into Roubaix. Um, what pressure do you ride at? Just, you know, on, when you're riding on chip seal, say. 
I if I have my tubeless twenty eights on, they will mm-hmm. go down to the seventy range. Okay. Seventy, seventy five. Um yeah. a little higher I, if the pavement's smoother. Yeah. I I've been riding it around sixty five lately. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, you're lighter than me, so you can you can let a lot of air out. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, just things have changed so much. That, I mean, 65, I, uh, it, there, days gone by, 110 would have been the lowest I would have ever even considered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 23 millimeter tires. Uh, <laughs> so. A lot of riders will double wrap their bars to deal with the yes. punishment of the cobbles. Andre Greipel put bar tape on his pedals right across kind of the axle area to absorb more shock. And Andre had a good ride, too. He was up there in the contender. So maybe that's the key. You put bar tape on your pedals and do well at Roubaix. <laughs> on your pedals? And, yeah, on your pedals. Yeah, little, wow. little strips down there to, just to reduce a little of the shock coming up through the, through, out the crank arm. So. Any vibration you can get rid of, I guess, yeah. is a good thing. How about you? Have you done any, anything crazy equipment-wise for a special event? You know, I apart from... Uh, changing tires and changing pressure, I don't do a lot uh, for any race. I just, uh, I, I am a firm believer in dancing with the girl that brung me. And so what I train on, I also uh, race on. Mm-hmm. So I, I just keep it real, you know, keep a very stock set up. Um, and I, I'm even superstitious about changing tires. I won't ever put a new tire on in, you know, any sooner than a week before a race you know yeah. i have to be riding that tire for at least a week just to make sure you know that it's seated and that the sealant has cured well and that i'm good so you know i i don't even know if there's well i know there's not a lot of sound reasoning i'm just like like a lot of cyclists a little superstitious about things that have burned me once for no particular reason mm-hmm I tend to agree. I like to at least have, you know, half dozen rides on any piece of equipment. Yep. Um, like fresh cleats in a mountain bike race. I don't like fresh cleats. I would never do that. I would, uh, yeah. I it's, want them broken in. Yeah. I uh, My cleats, I generally, they, they need to be at least a couple of weeks old. Well, for one thing, new cleats on mountain bikes make sound, right? There's there's definitely mm-hmm. a, a little bit of a squeaky sound. Uh, and a, a lot more friction. It you don't click out quite as easily. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm. Um, it, it, it would be different if I had my own mechanic who I could say, "Hey, let's let's tweak this a little bit." But no, I'm. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty much a. Let's make sure everything is go, is working real well for me, and then just stay with it for the race. Mm-hmm. Have you had a, a unfortunate mechanical induced DNF? Um, well, at True Grid a few weeks ago, we talked about that where yeah. I, my derailleur cable uh, snapped. But of course, that wasn't really a mechanic. A, a, that wasn't just a mechanical that happened. That was a crash-induced mechanical. Yeah. Trying to think. Um, I had one of those. I had a de- yeah. derailleur cable with rear one go on me um, at a grasshopper event. And I was on yeah. a climb. And I said, well, uh, what am I going to do here? And I did something. I got it. Years, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, well, I got it. I tightened my limit screw as far in as it would go to shove the uh, the rear derailleur up to about the. Oh, I must have had it in the fourteen or something like that, and then left it in the the small ring so I could get up out of the hole I was in, and uh, then had two gears riding the west of the end <laughs> about fifty miles in. Oh, so it wasn't boy. no. I did DNF because at the bottom of a steep climb that finished the ride. I, I pulled the plug there. That wasn't yeah. enough. What could you do? Yeah, I had um, I had a crash very early in uh, the unofficial Cocopelli race uh, years ago, and um, because of a, a bent derailleur hanger, I uh, was only able to shift into very few gears without a lot of rubbing and squeaking and just you know ghost shifting. And so I it, this is back when. Um, when basically you had, um, well, well, long story short, I, I, there were three gears I was able to shift into, uh, for about, tw- uh, I think I was out there for 14 hours or so with, with this three gear gearing. So oh, man. yeah, 
I tell you what, shifting, man. It's it, it's a good argument for single speeds. <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's time for us to move on to the pace line picks. Uh, do you want to go first or do you want me to? You should go first. I just did a lot of talking. I'm tired. I will go first. Okay. okay. So this has nothing to do with bikes except for the fact that I uh, recommend it as a great thing to listen to while you are on the trainer or on a lonely stretch of road and don't uh, feel like you're putting yourself in danger by putting in the headphones, the S-Town podcast. Uh, Have you listened to this yet, Michael? No. No? I'm writing it down right now. S-Town. Yeah. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Uh, 16 million downloads so far, brought to you by the same folks uh, who produced this American Life and the Serial series. Okay, uh, it starts out uh, as sort of a real life murder mystery and turns into something much, much more. All seven episodes were released at once, and um, there is some controversy about whether this is a little bit too real and whether too many real people are affected and kind of exposed by it, but. Uh, and I won't go into too much on that. I will just say that in terms of uh, documentary making and journalism and storytelling uh, and just great audio, I don't think I've ever heard it's equal. Seven hours of fantastic storytelling, journalism, documentary making, S-Town. You got to listen to it. Okay, I will. I wrote it down. S-Town podcast. Got it. Yes, Ah, boy. My pick, (laughs) how would you feel about an e-mountain bike showing up at Leadville? I would feel very uncomfortable with that. (laughs) Well, uh, Colorado, uh, and my favorite governor's name, John Hickenlooper, uh, this week is, I love that name, Hickenlooper, uh, has signed a bill defining a three-class system for electric assist bikes in Colorado. Uh, the class system will do, be kind of set up depending on the bike's top speed and whether the electric motor assist uh, is activated while pedaling. The new law requires manufacturers to label those bikes so they're easy to identify and gives local government authority to manage e-bikes on paths in other jurisdictions. With its passing, Colorado is now the fourth state to pass e-bike legislation after hmm. California, Tennessee, and your state, Fatty, Utah, has Yay. e-bike classifications. Uh, Paceline friend and head of the Bike Product Suppliers Association e-bike committee, Larry Pizzi, says, at long last, e-bikes are really gaining the momentum we need them to. Colorado hmm. is really important to this effort. Now, while the bill requires, and this is my Leadville point here, while the bill requires all e-bikes, including e-mountain bikes, to have the stickers, the bill does not affect management of e-mountain bikes on public mountain bike and hiking trails. It is only applicable to the road, bike lanes, and bike paths. The dirt, of course, still has to be worked out uh, with landowners and land managers, but as I've discussed with um, the Paceline listeners before and as Larry Pizzi has told us before, that they have gone ahead and they've included e-mountain bikes and kind of put given them a spot within this classification system for them to fit so that when the day does come, when land managers or the governments figure out how to deal with e-mountain bikes, they'll have an immediate place and an immediate classification in this, this sticker system, if you will. Uh, e-bikes have been in California already. Um, the law has for about a year, and I can tell you... Uh, this state is hopping with e-bikes. In fact, Santa Monica and and my general area. There's a street in on um, Main Street in Santa Monica, fatty. And uh, first of all, there's a ton of bike shops, but most of them are e-bike related. Uh, there's really? easily a handful in a, in a stretch of road that's about mm, a mile and a half. There's easily five e-bike shops that do nothing but e-bikes. Um, and they these these things are running all over the place now um, because they have legitimacy. People understand them. The shops know how to market and sell them, and they can tell people because of the law 
where they can ride them, which is always a huge question. People walk in, they go, where can I ride this? And if the salesperson goes, oh, on the street? Yeah, that's not a complete answer. Now they can tell them, you have an A-class e-mountain bike, you can ride it on such and such place. And that's really important. Some other states working on this, Arkansas, Arizona, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan, Connecticut, New York, all working on bills right now. And again, that's what Pizzi told us some months ago is California was the start. They need New York. New York's still hanging out there. But other outdoorsy states like your state, Fatty, Colorado, really important to the growth of e-bikes in the United States. You know, it it would be so easy to take the snob approach on this, to just say, you know, they are bad. And I, I think that this is the more sensible alternative to classify them. And I think obviously that needs to be extended out to dirt um, because at some point it's not just going to be California where these are popular. They're going to be popular everywhere. Mm-hmm. It is yep. inevitable. Yep. And yeah, we need to, we need to find a way to make the, make it so that it is safe and that everyone's accommodated and that there is some sort of structure there, you know, who yields to whom, right? So I don't know. Let's welcome them, I guess, right? They're, they're part of the clan. All right. Fair enough. I think that's going to be it for this episode then. What do you think of that? I think that should wrap it up. We're going to I think it should. We're going to try to get Patrick back from uh, the land of the rising sun and make this a threesome again. Fantastic. So yeah, next week look forward to having the the Trace Amigos back together. In the meantime, subscribe, rate, review us all the places that you normally would. If you love it, let your friends know. And if you leave us a review and we learn from it or we like the review, we'll read it on air just like we have uh, today. So for Hottie and for Patrick, I'm Fatty, and you've been listening to The Pace Line. Yeah, okay, I could sit uh, in the wheel, but you know, in the Roubaix, here in this race, even when you sit in the wheel, it's uh, it's not really that uh, you are sitting like in the, in the sofa. Yeah.